Welcome to Inside IR, a podcast series by Herbert Smith Freehills that explores the latest developments in the Australian industrial relations landscape. Hello and welcome to Inside IR, the Australian industrial relations podcast. My name is Rowan Doyle and with me is Natalie Gaspar and we're partners in the Herbert Smith Freehills industrial relations team. Thank you for joining us for our second episode of Inside IR, the series that arms HR, IR and legal professionals with the latest in industrial relations thinking. We've got a jam-packed agenda today, Nat. Uh, We've got a lot to get through. We're going to give our second episode of an update on the Jobs and Skills Summit outcomes. But before we do that, Nat, a few thank yous. Huge thank yous. We've had incredible feedback from the launch of our first episode Rowan, it seems like people other than our mums are tuning in, so (laughs) really appreciate everyone reaching out to offer their thanks for um, supporting a dedicated IR podcast. Um, There's one particular theme of feedback that I feel compelled to address, and it's the placement of these yieldy leather-bound parchments and the juxtaposition of this very modern, kind of uh, exciting, interesting podcast with um, the old book. So, uh, dear listeners, those are uh, original editions of the Conciliation and Arbitration Act and um, just there to remind us of the history in this space. Well, that's it. For those listening in uh, and watching on the vlog or vlog as we like to incorrectly call it. Um, so yeah, just to, to remind us that we're learned in this space. Right? Thanks, Nat. Now we should get stuck into episode two, um, where as I said, we'll finish off our update on the outcomes of the Jobs and Skills Summit. But before we get to the main agenda, Nat, we've gotten a bit of an update on the consultation and white paper process. Yeah. So Rowan, that's kicked off. So consultation has commenced with Treasury. The white paper process is in train. Submissions are invited to be uh, to be provided before midnight on the 30th of November, so it's actually not that much time. The government has indicated that the white paper will be released September next year. So it's a really broad terms of reference covering all sorts of things. Um, it's going to build on the outcome of the Jobs and Skills Summit. We're told uh, the frame of reference will explore issues, frameworks and policy approaches relevant to the future of Australia's labour market over the medium to long term. It will take into account a diverse range of perspectives, Australia, including from representatives of civil society, unions, employers and governments. So ambitious program there, really broad terms of reference. But what we think is going to happen, in fact, what we're sure, is that we're going to see some legislative reform before we see the outcome of the white paper, Rowan. So that is directed more to the medium to long term. The government, as we said in the first episode, is committed to legislating some of the changes that we spoke about in the first episode and what we intend to canvas today before we see that. That's right. So they won't necessarily be dealt with as part of the white paper process, um, but nevertheless, still important that we monitor that broader consultation Absolutely. and the white paper process. And if our listeners do want any assistance with the making of mm. submissions, do, do get in touch. But as we mentioned last episode, Nat, there are roughly 33 different outcomes from the Jobs and Skills Summit that relate to industrial relations matters. We won't be covering all of them as part of this series, Nat, because for many of them, there just simply isn't enough detail to have a sensible debate about them at this stage. But what we will do instead is focus on some of the items that we do have a bit of detail yep. uh, and the items that we think are going to have the biggest impact on impact on industrial relations in Australia. So with that in mind, uh, there are four topics that we should cover today, Nat. The first one is same job, same pay. 
Now that's one that we've probably seen the longest debate on over the course of the past year or so. Mm. We saw a, a bill back in November um, from, um, uh, from Minister Albanese that perhaps gives us a bit of an indication about what we um, might have in store on that front. So I'll hand you shortly to take us through that, Nat. The second is limits on the use of non-permanent labour. There are a number of uh, Jobs and Skills Summit outcomes directed to that objective. The third, measures to increase the proportion of employees that are covered by enterprise agreements. Now, unashamedly, that's one of the stated objectives of many of these outcomes as well, Nat. We'll yep. talk through how that might be achieved. And finally, number four, just want to spend 30 seconds on uh, our favourite topic, multi-employer bargaining and termination of EAs. I know we did cover that last episode, Nat, but given the significant implications of those types of reforms, we'll just give a, a bit of a running brief update on uh, the status of those matters, just so we're keeping a close eye on, um, on the development of them. Great. So let's touch, with, kick off with same job, same pay. Now, moving into this election, the Albanese government, one of its key platforms was cre creating and securing uh, permanent work and reducing the incidence of insecure work. Now, insecure work, as far as the government is concerned, it's really broad. It touches on concepts such as casual labour, contractors, uh, fixed term workers and participants in the gig economy. So the first cab off the rank is uh, the same job, same pay legislation. So as you mentioned, Rowan, we did see an early indication of that that has been a theme that's been on the government's agenda for quite some time, indeed, whilst in opposition. We saw a bill, the same job, same pay bill, be introduced into Parliament in November of last year quite skeletal in form, but it does give an indication of what we can expect to see. Rowan, can you um, give us an overview of what that addressed, the initial bill? Yeah, the, I mean, there were essentially three elements to that bill, I think, um, and one of them being the centrepiece is the one that got the most airplay in media, and, and that is the same job, same pay obligation. The obligation on hosts to ensure that any workers that it engages through labour hire businesses are afforded the same or no less favourable terms and conditions as they would be required to pay their own direct workforce. So that was the centrepiece of the November bill and would expect to see a similar mm. centrepiece in any legislation that's uh, released on same job, job, same pay, likely next year now, as we understand it. Um, but there are also two other elements that perhaps got a little bit less attention. The second being the obligation on hosts to work with the labour hire providers in order to ensure compliance with the, the same job, same pay obligation. Now, that would include a whole range of things like the sharing of information about terms and conditions to enable compliance, perhaps auditing of uh, the terms and conditions being afforded to workers, and a whole range of other measures which would impose uh, quite a regulatory mm -hmm. onus, I think, on, uh, on employers, on hosts to ensure compliance with those obligations. But even less known was perhaps the third element, and that was broader obligations to ensure that labour hire workers are afforded the same uh, workplace conditions as, as directly hired employees. Yeah. So things like access to uh, job vacancies and the advertising of those vacancies, yeah. the capacity to apply for those vacancies, um, the access to workplace facilities, access to workplace training, uh, and also access to um, similar entitlements when it comes to working hours and working locations. 
So um, reading between the lines, that would include things like similar consultation and notification processes in the event of changes to working hours. Yep. So, I mean, these are quite extensive they obligations, are. Nat, and I think as a result of that, there's been uh, quite a lot of consultation and lobbying from the mm. employer side uh, where, you know, hosts are perhaps concerned about the potential breadth and reach of these obligations. And um, obviously what remains to be seen, Nat, is, is how much of that November bill will make its way That's into right. a revised 2023 bill. Yeah. I think there's a couple of points to pick up on there. One is um, the passage of this through Parliament. So we've seen One Nation introduce a member's bill largely touching on this same issue, although slightly more confined to workers covered by specified awards. So. What the relevance of that is, is that I think we're going to see the passage of this legislation with One Nation and Greens support through Parliament move through quite quickly. The second thing I just wanted to touch on again is this interest in your thoughts, Ron, like what evil is this legislation designed to protect, to, to cure? And um, the idea is that it's designed to present, prevent a race to the bottom for wages. It's designed to secure permanent workforce and to reduce the reliance on casual labour. Now, we are in record low unemployment and underemployment levels in this country. Um, so it's interesting to, to sort of think about this suite of legislation in that vein. There's a lot of discussion about what same job and same pay actually is. Again, it relies on notions that are so objective, uh, sorry, subjective, objectively, very difficult to determine. So, um, you know, in some circumstances, you can say, yes, someone picking um, goods in a, in a warehouse is performing exactly the same job. But if they're a casual compared to a permanent workforce, there's you know, what's the pay differential? There's a casual component as opposed to permanent component. There's different overheads. We're really removing an important um, competition barrier in the market if we're um, introducing this legislation at large. So there's a whole range of other circumstances where non-permanent labour is engaged other than, you know, your manual sort of top-up labour. Yeah, so there's, a need, there's a need for that type of flexibility Absolutely. in certain circumstances. That's right. I yeah. mean, it does, you're right, Now it does play into a range of other uh, outcomes and objectives that arose from the Job Summit, which are broadly directed at uh, disincentivising or perhaps removing the access to non-permanent labour. Yeah. It might be worth touching on that briefly. Yeah. Well, look, again, we've seen the High Court um, in the last 18 months or so in um, the Jamset case, personal contracting, in the decisions relating to casual workers and the definition, a primacy on the contract of employment. And so what that has done is um, provided certainty to participants to say, well, in fact, okay, you're a contractor, you intended to provide your services as a contractor, you're a contractor. Um, some of the proposed legislative reforms are seeking to unwind those changes that have been made to the High Court and to say, well, actually, it's more of an objective test in that space. So one of the potential reforms that we're expecting is as the government has said, to introduce an objective test into the Fair Work Act to determine whether or not a worker is a casual or not. There's been some other changes in this space. Um, there's a lot of talk about providing enhanced protections for participants in the gig economy. 
Um, we don't know yet quite what that looks like. We've seen some discussion in the space about coverage of modern awards into those workers. The government has said that what it wants to introduce is this concept of job security as to one of the objectives in the Fair Work Act. Now, as we said in the last episode, Rowan, one of the things um, that uh, is coupled with that is the enhanced arbitral powers of the Fair Work Commission. So it will be interesting to see what that translates to. And then one of the other amendments, which I think is proposed amendments, which I think is really interesting, is um, the limits on the use of fixed term contracts. Yeah. And so what the proposed amendment seeks to do is say that, well, after you've engaged someone after and rolled over their contract after two, two times, for example, or 24 months, you, you can no longer do that. Now, um, there's so many circumstances where you use fixed term employees for project specific work. More often than not, that runs over, the project runs over due to circumstances out of everyone's control. If you can't re-engage that person to finish off the project, they're out of work. Again, mm. it, 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 it doesn't seem to make sense uh, for what it's trying to do. This is where the detail is going to be important. Very. I mean, to see what exceptions might apply to these prohibitions or limitations. But, but it is clear the broader objective is to limit access to yeah. uh, what has been uh, called these less secure forms of work yeah. and incentivise more direct permanent employment. Um, which I think brings us to our third topic, Nat, which is measures to increase the proportion of employees covered by agreements. There's uh, unsurprisingly a range of outcomes that have uh, arisen from the Jobs and Skills Summit that yep. are directed to that objective. Um, there's, there's three of them, which I'll refer to briefly. One is to ensure that all workers and businesses can negotiate in good faith for agreements that benefit them, including small business, women, care and community services sectors and First Nations people to give the Fair Work Commission the capacity to proactively help workers and business reach agreements that benefit them, and removing unnecessary limitations on access to single employer agreements. Now, as with many of the action items arising from the summit, Nat, the detail is going to be important. It's not yep. immediately clear how all of this is going to translate into legislative amendment. But there are a few clues on this one. Yep. Um, one is that whilst there's a reference to uh, small business, women, care and community services and First Nations people. It's not limited to those um, parts of our workforce. It's really expressed as an example, yeah. but the broader objective is to ensure that all workers can negotiate agreements. There's also a reference to removing unnecessary limitations on single enterprise agreements. Now, there's really only one in yes. limitation yes. that's relevant here, and, and that is if an employer refuses to bargain, then we know that employees and their representatives need to seek for seek and apply for a majority support determination. Yep. Now, that involves proving to the Commission that a majority of the employees that are being represented want to bargain, yep. establishing that the group's fairly chosen and establishing that it's reasonable to make the order. Now, in practice, provided that the majority is proven, yep. generally through the means of a survey or the like, yep. then those determinations are generally granted. It, they are. It's a relatively low bar in terms of an evidentiary threshold that the Commission needs to satisfy itself of. That's right. So reading between the lines, I think what we're likely to see is probably the removal of the need to go down the majority support path and perhaps yep. just an automatic right upon um, unions or employees to initiate bargaining themselves without having to prove majority support 
and enabling them to effectively force employers to the bargaining table without having to go mm. through that administrative process. And again, Rowan, what the idea of this, or at least the stated intention of all these sorts of reforms, is to increase participation in enterprise bargaining for industries and sectors and employees that have not had the bargaining power and ability to engage in that. But the sort of reform that um, we're talking about here could compel active participants, we don't know just yet, but active participants in bargaining who don't fall within those sorts of sectors. So That's exactly right. I think that's the big issue to watch here is with this reform and, and many yep. others, are they going to be limited to low paid sectors, to sectors that traditionally have found it difficult to engage in the bargaining process? Or are they going to apply across the board? Yep. Because as we know, I mean, for those that already engage in enterprise bargaining, even small tweaks to the existing framework can result in some really significant shifts in bargaining power and, and probably unintended outcomes. Yeah. So I think that's that's the, the area to watch. Are yeah. these reforms going to be limited to those sectors and those specific problems or are they going to apply across mm. the board? Well, what, what's really interesting is um, the same job, same pay um, suite of reforms that we're talking about might actually effectively be a bit of a Trojan horse to achieve these sorts of outcomes without resorting to the need to bargain at all. You don't need to bargain, um, you know, it, it, it applies across the entire participants in the industry and the workforce. So um, really interesting. That's true. And uh, there's also the reference to the Fair Work Commission having the capacity to proactively help yeah. workers and businesses reach agreement. Now, again, real question of what that means. Uh, it, it will likely enable the Fair Work Commission to intervene without having to wait for the bargaining participants to request that intervention yeah. or to make the application. And at its extremes, uh, you mentioned this earlier, arbitration, it could actually empower the Fair Work Commission to determine bargaining outcomes. Uh, which again raises the question, will that apply to those that already engage yep. in the bargaining framework or will it be limited to those that traditionally haven't been able to? Yep. So that's one to watch, Nat, which um, brings us to our fourth and final topic, our favourite, uh, the status of multi-enterprise bargaining and termination of EAs. Speaking of big shifts in bargaining power, Nat, there's um, we're keeping a bit of a watching brief on this and as far as I'm aware, there's still four key changes that remain on the table that haven't been ruled out, um, whether by government or the ACTU. And they are enabling unions to force multiple employers to bargain together against their will. Yep. Applying multi-employer bargaining across the board and not limiting it to low paid sectors or sectors that traditionally haven't engaged in enterprise bargaining. Enabling protected industrial action in support of multi-enterprise bargaining or, or even sector-wide bargaining. Yep. And finally, removing or at least reducing the capacity for employers to terminate expired enterprise agreements that perhaps have become unsustainable or outdated. So th those four key changes still have not been ruled out. Nope. And there's been uh, continuing lobbying on the part of the ACTU in support of, of those changes. In fact, uh, very recently, we've had uh, Sally McManus labelling employer concerns about multi-enterprise industrial action as a ridiculous scare campaign. Mm. And Ms McManus has said that if workers have no access to protected action, bargaining powers reduced to almost zero. Now, now, I don't think anyone is saying that there should be no access to protected action generally. I mean, workers yeah. need access to protected action to level the playing field and impose lawful pressure yep. in the context of bargaining. But it does raise the very important 
question, which we've asked in relation to a few of these proposed reforms, what is the vice that it's directed to address? And I think that's particularly important when it comes to multi-enterprise bargaining and industrial action, because it's important we're clear on the answer to that question before Agreed. we move to bill stage. Yeah. Employees, generally speaking, already have access to uh, lawful industrial action as a means to, um, to impose sort of leverage in bargaining. If the ACTU's concern is that there are pockets of industry that either can't bargain because they can't achieve majority support or perhaps can't engage in meaningful industrial action for a range of reasons, mm -hmm. then the reform should be directed at those particular pockets of industry or those work groups. And for example, you could envisage some pretty minor tweaks to the existing low paid bargaining stream, which is supervised by, by the Fair Work exactly. Commission to address some of those um, pockets of uh, the workforce, pockets of industry, where those problems exist without applying a broad brush solution that will actually have some pretty significant implications for employers that already engage in the bargaining process. Exactly. Because you could envisage a situation where, I mean, the, the, the sector-wide or even just multi-enterprise-wide industrial action could be quite impactful and you will have employers that just can't withstand the industrial pressure as a result of that. Yep. So where does that take us? It incentivises take it or leave it bargaining on the employee and union side. Uh, and it doesn't take much to imagine no. you have some pretty undesirable outcomes as a result of that and increased level of disputation Agreed. in this country. So Agreed. there's some perhaps uh, unintended consequences from applying a broad brush solution to some of these reforms. But it is important that we keep a close eye on them because they could pretty significantly impact the bargaining framework for those that already engage in it. Agree. So we'll be keeping a key eye, keen eye on those developments and updating our listeners, of course. So look, that brings us to the end of episode two, Rowan. We continue to welcome everyone's feedback on what we've touched on so far, but also any thoughts or ideas for future episodes. Um, we do have a dedicated email address that you can send missives to. So insideir at hsf.com. Please do let us know if there's something that you would like to address in future episodes. Thanks, Nat, and thanks for joining us. And we look forward to seeing you at episode three very shortly. In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.